As I was preparing this particular message, I could not help but recall the classic 1956 film, The Ten Commandments, okay? And this scene, the scene of God meeting Moses on the mountain in the burning bush, it takes place a little after two hours into what is a three and a half hour movie. So a little over half, two-thirds, almost two-thirds of the way into the movie is when God finally shows up to Moses. But here in the book of Exodus, it's near the beginning of the book when God shows up. So God has a lot to do through Moses. And, you know, when Moses goes up there and he's shepherding the sheep, he's, he's a strong, a strapping Charlton Heston in the full of the vigor of life. And he's, you know, he's, he's muscle-bound, as, as real muscle-bound, not artificial inflation, but like healthy muscle, you know, the way, anyway. And he goes up there, and, and, and he encounters God, and he comes down, and, and remember what he's like? He's got this crazy wild hair, hairdo that's all gray, and his beard has turned gray, and he's got this faraway look, that, that thousand-yard stare in his eyes. And everyone's going, he's seen the face of God. How would they know that he's seen the face of God? Well, obviously, look at him. He looks crazy. People who encounter God become crazy. Or at least that's the common notion that's out there. So the the film kind of captured that cultural sense that when you encounter God, you become a crazy person. Now, I don't really want to encounter God in such a way that I become a crazy person. I don't want to have my hair suddenly, but if God wants to do that, fine. But the movie did capture something accurate from that event. Namely, when Moses encounters God at the burning bush, his life is forever changed. Nothing is the same going back. Everything changes. Now, the burning bush incident or the burning bush encounter actually goes from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 17. It's a, it's a good discussion with, that he has with God. It's a, it's a good self-disclosure that God gives to Moses. And in a very real sense, this passage is Moses' conversion experience. This is where he comes face to face with the living God and he recognizes who he is in the light of God's disclosure. In this section, 3.1 to 4.17, we see Moses move from a position of ignorance to knowledge, from skepticism to faith, from reluctance to obedience, indeed from aimlessness to purpose. Everything changes. Now, you and I were not called to go tell a foreign ruler to let people out of their land, right? Moses was a unique person in a unique time and place in history. But this passage does, I believe, have something to say to us because it's easy for us as Christians to get bogged down in the routine and in the mundaneness of life and so become numb to the great and wonderful mysteries of God and indeed forget who God is, forget how great He is, and forget 
what exactly it is that he has called us to do. I believe that as we look at this passage, we will see the amazing way in which God works, the amazing revelation of who God is, and the amazing task and promise to which he commissions us. So I actually want to look at this whole passage in two parts. Today, we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, which amounts to God's call. Next week, we're going to look at verses 11, 311 to 417, which amounts to Moses' conversation. Okay? So God's call and Moses' conversation. Uh, I titled this sermon, The God Who Initiates, because I wanted to underscore that God always takes the initiative. The true God. Not the God that we wish were there. The God that we want to create. But the true God always, always, always takes the initiative. And it always starts with God revealing and disclosing himself to make himself known to those whom he is approaching. God has not revealed himself simply so that we can sit there and have abstract, dispassionate ruminations on the divine. God does not want to be studied and dissected the way a botanist might dissect a leaf or a plant. The way we may dissect the human body to learn about its biology and physiology. Okay, God is not simply an object to be studied dispassionately. He is a living being who makes himself known that he might be adored. And so, when God chooses to reveal himself, it's always, always for the purpose of eliciting a human response so that we can have relationship. Isn't that astounding? That the God of the universe, the earth, is but a footstool. He desires relationship. That as we sang in Isaiah 43, he's called us by name. I'm forever amazed that any Christian would want to believe in a doctrine that says God's just up there with open arms wanting someone, anyone to come when the reality of the biblical teaching is that he's up there calling people by name. And if you're in Christ... He's called your name, and you've heard his voice, and you've responded, and man, you're safe, you are secure, and you are held. But life sometimes takes a toll, and we sometimes forget that. We sometimes forget that when God calls us, and we respond, and we have a relationship with God, that it's specifically for the purpose of transforming us. God is not changed by our relationship with him. Did you know that? God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You know who is changed by the encounter of God? We are. There are people who think that they can know and love and have God, but yet still be whoever they are. Live their lives the way, however they want. That is not true. The God who turns 
common earth into holy ground is the same God who takes the stuff of earth, a common man, and turns him into a holy man. You are holy because the Spirit of God resides in you and he is working to transform you. Things are never the same for someone who's been encountered by the living God. So this passage is amazing. Amazing. One of the things I love is that he uses Moses at all. You know, we're accustomed to thinking about how God uses unassuming people, but think of how revolutionary that is. I mean, Abram was just a wandering Aramean heathen, and God grips him and turns him into the father of faith. Jacob was, I mean, none of us would have liked Jacob, a sniveling, plotting, scheming backstabber, a jerk. And he becomes Israel. Joseph, a brash teenager, God uses to become the number two man of the most powerful nation of his day. And here, God is going to take a fugitive from Egyptian justice and turn him into the great liberator, the great lawgiver, arguably one of the top five most influential people the world has ever seen. But of course, that's just the first few chapters of the Bible. He goes on and he pulls shepherd boys out of fields. He hears the prayer of a barren woman and, 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 and she gives birth to Samuel, one of the most, I mean, he was an awesome dude in his day. On and on, God calls people and perhaps even most spectacularly, he calls his enemies. Think of Saul of Tarsus who raged against the church. And God called him and turned him into one of his most powerful spokesmen. What does that say for you and me? You think you're too ordinary? You think you're too unimportant? You think you're too insignificant? God uses all kinds of people. And you never know. You never know. So, take heart. You're in good company. Now, in this passage, uh, I just love how God reveals himself. And there are three key points I want to make. First, in our relationship, God often disrupts our routine. Second, God orients our understanding of this. I'm sorry, God orients our understanding for purposes of right relationship. God orients our understanding. And third, God commissions us for service. So in a nutshell, when God has brought you into relationship with himself, you need to think in terms of two things. One, worship, the adoration of the living God. This is where when you are basking in the presence of God, you are like, as ha- you need to be as happy as a pig in slop. It should be home for you to be in the presence of God. But then he's also called you for a purpose. To do something. Maybe not liberate the Hebrews from the Egyptians. But he's called you to something. 
And you know what we call that in Christianese since the Reformation? The doctrine of vocation. You have been given a task. And you need to do it in the name of Jesus. To the glory of Jesus. One of the things that's amazing about this passage is before God ever says a word to Moses about who he is and how he operates, he shows him. Isn't that amazing? He shows him. So first, let's look at this, at how God oftentimes disrupts our routine. You know, one of the pious myths out there is that if you want to encounter God, you got to go do something spiritual. You know, go sit on a pole. That's what they used to do. And they would literally sit on a pole. Can you imagine putting a platform on a telephone pole and sitting up there? I'm going to encounter God. Or meditating. Doing something spiritual. That, that's where God will encounter you. That's what we're told so often. Now God has oftentimes met us through the ordinary means of grace. God has given us the ordinary means of grace where, where he does meet with us. But one of the realities of life is that we can oftentimes become so bogged down in the mind-numbing quality of normal life, of real life, that our spiritual perception is dulled. Where we're not even thinking or looking or hear, listening for the voice of God in Scripture, in prayer, or anywhere else. How often do we get bogged down in life? I mean, e even this morning, the normalcy and the mundaneness of life is, is frustrating. It's aggravatingly distracting. This morning at my own house, it was just a chaos. It was chaos. Things were missing that should have been found. Searching for those things revealed that chores that were supposed to have been done yesterday weren't done. So we're angry. And then our dog decides to relieve itself on the floor multiple times. And I'm supposed to come here and preach. I promise you, I was not sitting on a pole meditating. That's what real life is. You're going through life and you want to, oh man, you want to have your devotions. You, you want to think deep things of God. But I got this boss yelling at me about the deadline. Man, I have this ache in my side that I got to get checked. I wonder what that, I hope it's not a tumor. Or well, I have a bill that needs to be paid. Oh, I got to get the kids to soccer practice. Well, life happens. And what's interesting is C.S. Lewis wrote about that. Have you read the screw tape letters? Where Uncle Screwtape, the, the, the demon, is writing to Wormwood? Or, or do I have it backwards? Anyway, whatever. But he talks about keeping the guy's attention off of theoretical thought. Keep him from thinking. Keep his attention focused solely on the experiences and, and, and the, and, and the, and the uh, phenomenons of normal life so that he's too busy thinking about not getting hit by a bus when he's crossing the street to think about the things of God. Because as long as your mind's, your mind's eye is focused solely on life and its problems and its realities, you'll never look beyond You'll never look up and you'll never question, oh God, where are you? Mundane, routine life. Jesus warns us in Mark 4.19. 
But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Beware the mind-numbing quality, the distracting quality of life. It gets us looking in the zone, kind of like when you're on the interstate and you've been driving a long time and your mind and your eyes just kind of glaze over and you just, you're just driving and you're not really paying attention. That's what can happen to us in terms of our spiritual life. But thankfully, God comes along and grabs our attention. And that's exactly what happens here. In verse 1 of chapter 3, it takes place 40 years. This is summarizing 40 years. Was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. For 40 years, he's been a shepherd. Talk about a boring life. Now, you may think in terms of shepherding his flock, when it says that he, he, went to the, he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay, Horeb is Mount Sinai. Horeb is its nickname, kind of like New York City is called the Big Apple or, or Chicago is called the Windy City. Okay, Sinai is called Horeb. But when they would shepherd their flocks, they would kind of just let them go. And they would just wander the earth. So this is probably 150 miles from the land of Midian. So he's, he's, he's been gone for weeks, alone. He may have had a couple other hands with him, but for the most part, he's just alone. He's an 80-year-old man out there wandering around in the desert with sheep. Talk about mundane, normal routine. And God shows up. Does God show up with a thunderclap? Split the sky. Arise like a phantom out of the ground. Moses. Oh. No. Did you, have you noticed that God doesn't speak at first? God catches his eye with what initially would have looked like just another common thing. A bush is on fire. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen bushfires, but they burn up. But for Moses to have noticed that the bush wasn't burning up means he was watching it. He didn't just take a quick glance because he had to observe over time that it wasn't consuming the bush. So there's nothing unique about the flame. So don't think of this as this holy fire, whatever that means. It wasn't a blue jet flame, right? It wasn't a white, hot, searing fire. It was a normal-looking fire. The thing that caught Moses' eye was that the bush wasn't burning up. Now, right there, that burning bush, the thing that distracted Moses from his, or got his attention, jolted him out of his routine, that's God right there disrupting his life. That's God speaking into his circumstance with something to grab his attention, to grab his attention and take it away from the focus of his normal routine. God does that for us. You see, in, in the natural world, as Moses was observing that bush, he knew that in the natural world, fires don't just perpetually burn. They consume whatever it is they're burning. So a bush that's not being consumed, that's, that's not normal. It's out of the ordinary. And so the burning bush represents those inexplicable things that demand us to pause for a moment 
and take a double glance. Have a closer look for more inspection. Now here's where we need to remember that we are not deists. Just because we believe that the sign gifts ceased at the closing of the apostolic era does not mean that we believe God has stopped working in the world. God uses these kind of disrupting events, circumstances, to grab our attention. Chances are you haven't seen a bush that burns perpetually. But maybe you've had an inexplicable circumstance. For example, at, when I was at Moody, I, and, and I learned that I was not a dispensationalist for me, that was a huge crisis of faith for me. I can look back and laugh, but at the time it was no laughing matter because I was taught that if you're not a dispensationalist, you're a liberal, and if you're a liberal, you're going to hell. So if I was finding that I was not a dispensationalist, what did that mean? It meant that I was going to hell. And so I considered leaving Moody. I applied to police departments. And, you know, at one, I, I became the number two person on their published list of, of people to hire. The number two person. Wow. After passing the physical exam, the written exam, the polygraph exam, the first interview, number two on their list. They hired 18 people, and I was not one of them. How do you explain that? Then I got a job, a really nice, cushy job that would have been great. And I was in their 90-day probation period that you couldn't miss, da 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 And I'm never sick. I am hardly ever, ever sick. And I got sick twice in like a two-week period. And so they canned me. How do you explain that? Maybe some of you have had an inexplicable person show up. Or say something, or do something that you're like, that's not normal. Or maybe you've had an inexplicable tr something, a thought just pop into your brain that just comes out of the middle of nowhere. Where, where did that come from? You know, normally your heart is, is real hard, and all of a sudden you have this thought, I, I should go write a check for so-and-so. Well, that's not normal. <laughs> okay? Or maybe you've had an inexplicable trouble or an inexplicable emptiness or yearning. Like Solomon, he's up there, I, got, I have everything, everything. Women, money, power, I'm, I got, I'm smart. I have everything, but why am I so, something's missing. Something's missing. Now the natural man wants to quell that, okay? If you have an inexplicable yearning or some circumstance, man, you, you, you just, you, you take a drink and you get over it. Or you, or, you, or you say, you know, a good string of luck, but you just, you just forget about it. You quickly rush back into the, the mind-numbed sense of reality. But we are called to pause and take a look. What would have happened if Moses had simply looked at that thing and said, man, it must be hotter here than I thought, and went about his day? I, must, I, need, some, I, need, I need some water. I must be hallucinating. If he had just walked away. Well, there wouldn't have been a Moses. The world was forever changed because he responded to the disruption of God. And when God sees that he turns away, that is when, or turns aside to come see, 
That is when God speaks. So Moses was not looking for God. Make that clear. Moses was not on a spiritual search. He was not a seeker. God sought him out. And God uses disrupting events to do the same for us. But then, secondly, God orients our understanding for right relationship. Okay, once Moses turns aside to see this wondrous sight, this spectacle that must be beholden because bushes normally burn up, that is when God speaks. Now, right here, it's pretty interesting. In verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. So we're introduced in verse 2 to this person, the angel of the Lord. And who or what is that? Part of the problem that we have is because when it says angel of the Lord, we typically think of angels as, as one type of being. So God made trees, God made animals, God made humans, God made angels. They're a type of being, okay? So when we hear angel of the Lord, well, that, that's a thing. It's a kind of being. But the word angel is simply in Hebrew, malach, which means messenger or representative. So for example, the Name of the prophet who wrote the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, my messenger. So perhaps this would be better translated as the representative of God or the messenger of God. Not because by using the word angel we get distracted. Because there are other angels that show up in scripture that are very distinct in behavior and in tone from the angel of the Lord. Normal angels show up and they will speak for God. God will visit you this time next year and you will have a son. Wow, okay. The angel of the Lord shows up and speaks as God. As we see here, I am the Lord. Wow, okay. Normal angels, when you fall down and worship at their feet, like in Revelation, they say, get up, I'm a servant like you. What happens when someone worships the angel of the Lord? They, he accepts the worship. So the angel of the Lord, as we see here in chapter 3, is able to be identified as God. He speaks as God, acts as God. But yet he's also differentiated from God. So in passages such as Zechariah 1.12, the angel of the Lord speaks to the Lord. How is that possible? What is that all about? Well, from the earliest church days, they have understood that the angel of the Lord is the accommodation of the second person of the Trinity, the logos of God, the word of God, pre-incarnate. That is why he's able to speak as God, accept worship as God, but yet speak to the Lord. Because, again, he's not the same as the Father. Now, why is it important that we note the existence of the eternal Son of God manifest as the representative of God here? Why is it important that the angel of the Lord is here? Because whenever sinful people want to encounter God, 
we must do so through his mediated presence. The angel of the Lord shows up whenever God wants to commune with a sinful people and not destroy them. The angel of the Lord shows up whenever a relationship or communication needs to happen face-to-face with people. But yet those same sinful people are stuck and mired in their own sin. You see, the reality is that God is holy and righteous and above and beyond all of our apprehension. And God can only be known by us if he condescends and reveals himself to us. And so the Son of God is that member of the Holy Trinity that intercedes and mediates and communicates God's presence without bringing us face to face with the wrath of a holy and perfect God. Now the angel of the Lord here comes to prepare a Hebrew to go lead people out of Egypt. But this is not the first place where the angel of the Lord shows up. You know where the angel of the Lord first shows up? Back in Genesis chapter 16, when a female Egyptian slave has been mistreated by her Hebrew mistress, the angel shows up and comforts her. Isn't that interesting how the roles have been reversed? First, it's the Hebrews mistreating the Egyptian slave. And the angel of the Lord shows up. And now the Hebrew slaves are mistreated by the Egyptians. And the angel of the Lord shows up. What does that tell us about God and his justice and in his mercy and his wrath? All of it. He truly is the God of the nations. He truly is for everybody. He's not just for one ethnic group. He's not a tribal deity. He's for the world. He really is king of kings and lord of lords. But the angel of the Lord calls out to him, Moses, Moses. He doubles Moses' name. Now the doubling of a name in Scripture always conveys emotional urgency or emotional intensity. So that, for example, when David finds out that his son has been killed, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Or when Jesus is confronted by Martha, she's so angry that her sister is not helping her. And what does he say? Martha, Martha. Or when Simon Peter is so confident that he's never going to fall away. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Wow. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Okay. The doubling of the name conveys emotional intensity, and it grabs Moses' attention and it beckons him to come. Come, interact with me. And Moses comes, and then what does God immediately say? Don't come any closer. So what is it, God? Come closer or stay away? Remember, we serve a holy God. A God who is not to be trifled with. And this is where God confronts his understanding to affect right relationship. When he comes close and he says, Take off your sandals, for the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. He's conveying that 
Approaching me is on my terms. I am holy and will be regarded as holy. You will comply with my instructions if there is to be relationship at all. Now that sounds abrasive, but our culture needs to hear it. God is this mini, minuscule, insignificant, inconsequential thing in our culture. For so many Christians, they've bought into this line that they're going to run up to Jesus in heaven and give him a body hug and a back slap. That you're going to go up to the throne of God in heaven and jump on his lap and cuddle around. What happens in Scripture whenever anyone sees the resurrected Christ? They fall on their faces and come undone. Because he is holy. This is the first time in the Bible that the concept of holiness is ascribed to God. Did you know that? That's why we say that in Exodus God reveals more about himself than in any other book. Okay, the concept of holiness, we tend to think in terms of moral perfection, in terms of his righteousness. And that's true, but holiness conveys separation. That those who are holy, or God who is holy, is separate from all common things, sin, yes, but anything that's common and ordinary. God is different. In the case of God, it conveys his complete otherness. He is not like you and me. He is truly unique. The closest many of us come to experience something holy is in regards to our grandma's china. You know, we have this china that we inherited from Kay's grandma, and I've been lugging it around for 20 years, and I think I've been honored enough to to eat off of it twice. It's, it's, it's protected and preserved and put away. And heaven forbid the children should use it. Don't even look at it too long or you might get in trouble. Okay? But God is holy. And relationship comes by him according to his decree. And God is not to be trifled with. So lest... Moses approached the fire and and tried to play with it, try to cook some hot dogs on it or something. Stand back. Now this is why we needed an incarnated son of God. When God shows up, the angel of the Lord shows up, when the pre-incarnate son of God shows up like this, the emphasis is on his transcendent holiness, his otherness, where he is He keeps us at arm's bay because we are sinners. And that's the wonder and mystery of the incarnation, is that now that he became man, he was able to be touched. He invited his followers to touch his sides, his hands, his feet. The incarnation is amazing. But God appears to us as he wants to be appearing, not as we want to be making. Isn't it astounding that he shows up like a flame of fire rather than like a a boulder oozing clay? We want a God made of clay. We really do. We want a God that we can form and fashion. We want a God who will affirm us and never condemn us. We want a God who has the exact same values that we do. We want a God who believes exactly what we believe and tells us we're right and has the same priorities as we do. We want God to be made of wax. 
But if you're making it, you're not seeing a deity that can save you. You're seeing a reflection of your own personality. It's a myth. Clay is shaped by the one who handles it. But what happens if you try to handle the fire? You'll get burned up. You get fire hot enough, and it can melt the earth under your feet. A fire, a flame of fire not consuming the object of its burn. It's not being fed by it. It's not being fueled by it. It in no way, shape, or form is being sustained by this plant, this bush, at all. It's a picture of God's absolute self-sufficiency. The bush didn't cause the fire. The fire appears. God is eternal, unchanging, self-sustaining. He doesn't need something to get him going. You may think that you're self-sustaining because you pay your own bills. You're not self-sustaining. you got to bring food and water and air into you. You need to be kept out of the cold. You need to be taken care of, okay? God is self-sustaining. Now here's why Moses suddenly then covers his face. Have you you noticed in verse 6 it says he covers his face because he was afraid to see God. Why is he afraid to see God? He doesn't learn until like chapter 34 that God can't be looked upon without killing him. So why is he afraid now? Because the only response to seeing a holy God is to recognize who we really are in the light of that. And Moses knew he's a sinner. He does not deserve to be standing there. He does not deserve it. And this holy God that just as easily can can start a fire and not consume a bush can do anything. And so the only proper response is to look away with reverence. Do you have a reverential outlook towards God? Do you recognize that he is someone not to be trifled with? Because if we find that, then he matters much. And if he matters much, then we know that he's someone bigger than us. And he's someone we can run to when the going gets tough. My dog, I have very clearly established that I'm the alpha. And in the dog world, there's a very clear social compact that, you know, the other dogs show, show obedience to the alpha. But what does the alpha do? Protects the others, right? So when the kids are playing too hard or she's scared, she'll run to me. Do we understand that we serve a God that we can run to because he's bigger and mightier and self-sustaining and nothing, nothing, nothing diminishes his power, his glory, his might, his being at all, and he only therefore exists for the good of his people? Run to him and bow before him. And in him you will find newness of life. But then God commissions, because God wants you to do something. From verses 7 to 10, or 7 to 9, I should say, God sort of rehashes what he's seen and heard and observed, all the abuses, and he says, I have come down to deliver them out 
him to take them up. God's going to do this. Great. Go get them, God. And what we really want to happen whenever all these battles need to be fought, we want that angel of the Lord, or, or even a lesser one will do, thank you, to show up and grab Pharaoh like Darth Vader and lift him off the ground in a stranglehold and tell him how it's going to be. Wouldn't that be simple and effective? If a fiery angel just showed up and ripped that dude out of his throne and like tossed him around a bit? But God doesn't work that way. God says, I'm here to bring my people out of Egypt. Then verse 10 happens. and You can hear the shoe drop. Therefore, I'm sending you, Moses. What? what, what God, what? You're, you're the fire here. You're the, you're the all-sustaining one. Why are you sending me? It goes back to Genesis 1. We're God's image. We're God's deputies on this earth. And God is glorified in the faith and obedience of his people. And so he is pleased to have this ministry in jars of clay, to use New Testament language. If God shows up and does it, it's terrifying. But when God has a man or a woman even show up and follow the obedience or obeyingly respond to the call of God and do what needs to be done, then God looks amazing. Now, Moses, as we see, is going to balk. But I want you to understand that you have indeed received a vocation from the Lord. And part of your worship. Part of your adoration of this great and mighty God is the faithful fulfilling of that vocation. God wants your children and your grandchildren to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So guess what that means? It means you'd better teach them. You'd better discipline them. God wants your spouse to be holy. So you better model holiness and you better expect discipleship. God wants the world to be subdued and, and, for, and for creation to be uh, uh, expanded. So you better use your creative powers for good. God has children for you to teach. God has people for you to lead. God has businesses for you to manage. So do your work to the glory of God. All these things are too much for a person and, and have... And have uh, Overcome many people with despair. But what happens if you see your vocation as a calling and that you are being sent by a holy God? What happens then? Do you see how you might have a little gumption in your gut? I hope so. God calls. He disrupts our routine. He informs us about who he is so we can stare in wide-eyed wonder at him and worship him and see that only he can therefore meet all of our deepest needs. And then he turns us around and he commissions us to go out. And perhaps our biggest commissioning comes from the Lord Jesus himself when he said to go and make disciples. Are we doing that? Are you doing that? 